Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Right, welcome. So thank you so much. Today we have Adrian Hogbrook. We're so glad you're here with us, Adrian. Excited and to be here. Awesome. Thank you. So let's just get started by you sharing with us, um, just telling us more about your current work, um, what you do at Southern New Hampshire University, and um, some of your advocacy work. We'd love to hear about that. So yeah. get us started. Thank you. Thank you. And again, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here and to share as well. Uh, so Southern New Hampshire University is uh, arguably the largest nonprofit university in the United States. Uh, we have about 180,000 learners, mostly online. Uh, but we do have a uh, what I call a very traditional kind of bucolic New England campus uh, that houses about 3,500 students. Um, but our work is, is global. And so uh, even with our size, uh, you know, we're considered uh, a large scaled university. Uh, the work that I have the opportunity to lead for the university is um, really a, a sort of our value proposition of translating our big North Star, which is transforming lives at scale, um, and understanding that even through scaled approaches, uh, that there still may be inequities that you cannot, uh, you cannot address. And so the work that we get to do in the Social Impact Collective is making sure that we're creating those equitable pathways and equitable outcomes, particularly for populations um, and people who um, have been often marginalized in higher education. And so if you look at the portfolio of our work, we're working with uh, some very uh, distressed communities within the United States, as well as in Africa and the Middle East. And if you notice, I said distre uh, distressed communities, not people, uh, because we have to see that people are assets and that our approach is really focused on learner first and not on um, you know, the deficits that someone brings uh, uh, to this. And so our work within uh, this uh, collective is to really ensure that we're building those equitable pathways so that there are trajectories for learning and for growth, and particularly in the post-secondary space. Um, and so the advocacy that you're, you're talking about really is a student first advocacy approach really understanding the dynamics of the learner and, um, and, and wrapping uh, the kind of supports in the education um, around the learner, building around the learner first versus the institution saying, here's what we have, come find us. That is amazing, Adrian. Thank you for sharing that. And, and my follow-up question to that is in some respects with our younger generations, Generation Z, I know we were talking before we got started around our kids that are part of this generation. They are a global generation. They're they're diverse, they're open, they're um, inclusive in their approach to things. But then we also see with, with such polarized politics and assault on a lot of these efforts around inclusivity and equity. So what are some of the challenges, some of the biggest challenges that you're facing right now in your work? Yeah. I think the biggest challenge, and if I were to use sort of this as an umbrella, is that we're still dealing with 
uh, persistent and pervasive barriers that really institutionalize the kind of systemic issues that we're, we're trying to break. And so when you think of it that way, and even thinking about the views as we were talking earlier, as you think about the views of, of those Gen Zers, and uh, they understand the dynamics of systems. And so a lot of what you're beginning to see is how they're approaching it in terms of uh, chipping away at those kinds of institutionalized approaches um, and understanding that, uh, that you can make a difference. And so often when I think about uh, this work, I think about, um, I think about it from a, a systemic perspective. Um, and then how do you identify what is the root cause? And then how do you approach that? And so a lot of the work that, uh, that we really focus on in terms of both uh, outcomes, as well as even as part of the process, is really thinking about um, how do you inform and influence uh, upward social mobility? How do you think, uh, how do you think about equity? Um, how do you think about equitable access? And not just equitable access, but also equitable outcomes. Uh, can you build uh, efficacious models and programs that actually help to drive those outcomes in some, um, some very stellar ways? And again, thinking about that from a mobility perspective, um, how do you mitigate the marginalization uh, that we often see? Um, and uh, we talked about uh, earlier about those communities uh, and the impact that they have on people uh, families, communities, uh, but then also seeing this as part of an ecosystem. So we talk about the systemic barriers, but then how do you create the right kind of ecosystems within those systems that help to eradicate, mitigate, and potentially eliminate uh, those barriers? And so that's where um, I really see a lot of this effort. And then when you think about, well, how do you get people involved? How do you think about this in a, and you're right, it is a very kind of polarized environment for a, a whole host of reasons, be it political or other. Um, and it's a way that people kind of divide themselves into thinking about how, um, how they might approach solving a problem. Um, one of the things that I, I often think about is, uh, you know, first, and it sounds really crass, really simple. Uh, the first thing is, uh, how do you identify those who are willing to do the work? And so work with the willing, right? Um, and so when you're working with the willing, it really is an opportunity to kind of build that kind of coalition um, that really helps to drive that. And then the other thing that I think about is I think about movement building. And so when you think of some of the biggest movements that have happened, uh, not just here in the United States, but across the world, uh, there've been sort of three legs of a stool that, I, uh, uh, that I've seen and that I've often talked about with this movement building. Um, one is uh, what is the practice or the program that is really showing uh, phenomenal outcomes? Um, it's really driving change. Uh, the second part of that is, um, is, is, as I mentioned before, um, are, what are the outcomes? You know, are the outcomes predictable? If so, then it becomes um, efficacious. So you get these consistent outcomes. And so you have the practice or the programming, uh, you have the research or the evaluation. And then the third and very important part of it is the, what are the policies that support it? And often when I talk about policy, I talk about policy with the big P. So you might think of legislative policy and other kinds of things. But I also think about the policy with the small P, which, is, uh, which are you know, our um, funders and others uh, supporting it as well. Is it shifting mindset? Um, and so as you begin thinking about that movement building, 
that's when you begin to see that movement building can happen in a corner room over here. It can happen in community. It can happen in a state. It can happen across a country. It can happen across the world. So I, I just want to ask if I could a quick follow up to that. So I mean, I think it's um, I think it's amazing what you said around the Gen Z being more aware of the fact that these are systemic um, issues and that it's really about you know as you said chipping away at kind of the institutional um, policy piece, but. How did how has this been affected by the pandemic? So a lot of our conversations on the podcast have been around, you know, how some work has been advanced as a result of the pandemic, and some work has, you know, kind of um, faltered a bit. And I'm curious from your perspective, especially when you look at access to education and online access to education and the resources people have. Um, how has the pandemic affected that? So I think uh, one. <laughs> in a subtle way, uh, because we've been kind of localized to a home or a community and had not had the opportunity to be out and about, um, I think it's really brought attention um, and social media has become a, uh, a multiplier in terms of how we understand issues. Whereas before we just saw um, uh, social media as being very transactional, um, many are beginning to see it as transformational. And so that has become an asset in a lot of ways, not just for Gen Zers either. I mean, I can think of the number of ways that I was able to digest, uh, not just taking information um, just as is, but to be able to disaggregate, to be able to critically view and review that kind of information, um, access to more things that I, did, I wouldn't have had ready access to. Um, so I think uh, that's one. Um, the other thing that I think of, um, and this goes back to the previous question and thinking about um, um, you know, how do you engage people? Um, I think of uh, three other things that also have, I think have been heightened as a result of the pandemic. And often when I think about, you know, working with the willing, um, I think of the three things, purpose, passion, and proximity. And so I, where I've seen, and this is, just, you know, this is a sum of two, uh, but I think it has implications across but when I look at my two adult uh, children who are 23 and uh, 22 and their partners and um, their group, uh, they have really refined their purpose. What is their action? What draws them in emotionally? And how do they critically construct or deconstruct their notion of what's happening? And so that has really led to a, a refinement of their purpose. And then when I think about passion, uh, again, this is a sum of two, but may have some generalization across. Um, when I think of passion, um, now they have a heightened sense of what are their priorities and where their emotionality and how they channel that uh, moving forward. And then the third element is proximity. Um, you know, we often think of proximity as proximity as being physically close to something. But I think what has happened over the pandemic is that through purpose and through passion, um, people have actually found themselves or centered themselves more proximal to the issues uh, that they care most about. Um, and that proximity um, is where you actually find a lot of the solving of problems. And so in the work that, um, that uh, I do and that we get to do at SNHU, um, we use a model where we're actually embedded in community. And why? Well, we could sit here in Manchester or from wherever we sit and say, Here's this solve for that, the, uh, the issue of the concern that's there. But when you use a proximal approach and you work with those who are trusted community partners, 
that's where the legitimacy for the issue, the legitimacy for identifying what the root cause is, and the legitimacy for the action that moves forward, that's where it, um, that's from where it comes. It's not Adrian sitting here saying, we must do this, but it is that proximal leader, that proximal agent that actually helps to, to drive that change. Adrian, I love these initiatives, especially around engagement. And I'm curious, how do you engage people when they've heard this, but they're hesitant or even just outright unwilling? Because you're teaching to a global community. How do you handle people who say, this is against my values? How do you get them in? So uh, you know, it's, it's not always easy. Um, you know, there is a narrative that goes with it. And just as we each make our own selections about the things that we will invest our time in, uh, part of that comes with our own experiences. And so one of the things that I do, one is, again, if you're not going to want to be involved, then I, I can't make you do that. I can't impose this on you. Uh, but the one thing that, that I often find that is compelling is, can you find a point of resonance? And so when I talk about that point of resonance, you may have two people or more who are politically polar opposites, but they find themselves, if you find the right kind of conversation, the right kind of action or inaction or the right way, you might find a point of resonance. And so I was actually talking with someone, uh, this, this has relevance. I was talking with someone last week and they were saying, um, you know, how uh, how do you approach being in new environments? And particularly as an African-American male, um, you know, athletic build, you know, my complex, you know, all those things. And I often find myself in places where, um, you know, there are not a lot of people who look like me. And then, so they asked, how do you enter into that room or how do you enter into that uh, that convening? And I said, my first question is often not, what do you do? My first question is, so where's home for you originally? And then all of a sudden, all of those typical barriers that you see, those representational barriers, be it height, weight, color, skin color, whatever it is, uh, those things start to move away and you start centering around points of resonance. And then that's where you begin to make that connection. In these kinds of really tough, challenging situations, these systemic issues, um, the question that I ask is, where do you find the point of resonance? And so the point that I walk away with most often is not trying to compel someone to believe in what I believe in. My simple point is, can I get them to walk away saying, huh, I've not, I've not thought about that perspective before. It's not, it may not change their mind, but is there something value add that I can share? Or is there something value add that SNHU can bring? Is there something value add that that proximal leader uh, through their own story or their own narrative can bring? Um, and so finding that point of resonance. That's awesome, Adrian. Um, so a lot of the people who listen um, to this podcast are leaders in organizations, maybe HR leaders. And when you're talking, you're, you're, the things that kind of come to mind for me are a lot about culture, organizational culture and culture transformation. And, you know, the, those things that you're saying, I'm like, oh, those are such good ways of thinking about making that kind of serious systemic transformation. So I'm curious, what would you, you know, tell leaders of organizations, um, how could they make kind of these ideas 
come to life or make them more accessible within an organizational context? Yeah. You know, organizations are built with people. Um, and so then people, even though, you know, every organization has a mission, every organization has a vision, or at least they, they should, or they won't be an organization for long, um, they're, they're constructed and built um, with people. So they're very organic. And so if we think about it from an internal perspective, and as I think about this, you know, I, I will ask, uh, so what is the employee value proposition? You know, what is it and why is it I should work at this, uh, this, for this organization, devote my time, dedicate my, my well-being in this organization? And so what is the value proposition? I think the next, uh, and again, these are not in a particular order, but just thinking about uh, what, what potentially comes next is, um, what is uh, what is the business case for uh, for how I approach uh, this work? Why why would I want to be here? And so a lot of that is not always driven by how much you're going to pay me. Uh, it's not driven by you know what's my professional uh, advancement going to look like. Although those things are important, but as we're seeing uh, and we've seen the data, uh, those are not the things that are the most compelling reasons why people. Um, are attracted to and stay within an organization. Uh, often it's, do I feel like I belong? And do I feel like I'm contributing something to it? So that sense of uh, sense of belonging. Um, and so, and then the other piece of this is around the engagement. Um, do I feel connected to the mission? Do I feel connected to the culture of the organization? And, you know, we all have uh, organizational core values where and how do I see those core values made manifest? Um, do these, are they actual behaviors and not just uh, you know, something that's posted up on a wall or a cubicle someplace? And so how do I see those behaviors and how are those behaviors rewarded? Uh, how are people held accountable for it? And then the, the last thing that I think about is uh, thinking about, uh, you know, is there, is there a, a strategic approach um, and measures to that approach for the work that's being done, both internally as well as how we um, how we do the work uh, in the external environment. And so, the behaviors: what is the value proposition? Do I feel a sense of belonging? Do I feel engaged? Do I feel like I'm actually a con uh, contributing to the value of the organization and that organization values me? And is there a strategic approach to why and how we're doing this? Adrian, I, I love all this, and I'd like to move back a little bit into your career about some of the pivotal moments that you've experienced in your career journey. What are some of those pivotal moments that got you to be where you're sitting today? Wow. Uh, so there, the, um, I, uh, I'll do the short version of this. There, there are two. Uh, so I, I had an opportunity to do uh, a TED Talk last year, and I actually opened the TED Talk talking about my father and how... Uh, in his time period of trying to get into and through college, uh, there were so many of the, again, the systemic barriers. And one might say, well, that was so long ago, Adrian, but those barriers are still here today. Uh, so that was a pivotal moment was having my father actually share that with me uh, and to see him move through that. And uh, in the TED talk, I, I talk about my father graduating from college one year before I graduated from college. Um, and so that was a pivotal moment to see that even when with those barriers there, uh, that's that you could still do it. Um, the second one came, um, I was actually had 
started out in higher education, was doing uh, tremendous work around transformation. I was working on my dissertation and was getting ready to, uh, to finish that. And I was doing my research on uh, what are the best predictors, quantifiable predictors of how well students, particularly students of color, would do in higher education. And it wasn't GPA. It wasn't their high school class rank. Uh, it wasn't, um, you know, all those kind of quantitative factors that you look for. The best predictor was the student's own expectations of how far they would go. And when I realized that, <laughs> I defended my dissertation on a Friday, I left higher education, and I went to work in not going into a high school setting, not going into teaching in a middle school setting. But I said, if, if I'm really going to affect a movement or to really have impact, then I've got to improve the trajectory so that the expectation building becomes something that is internalized and that a student or a community or learners can see themselves through a pathway, not just getting into college, but to actually see themselves through college. And so that was one of the most pivotal moments in my life that I began to really fully understand the systems that are built and designed around people that either help to support or actually marginalize people. And so that's when my sort of systems approach to this work really happened. So those are two very pivotal moments for me. That's um, that's amazing, Adrian. And um, I love that you started. I actually teach a, a how to give a TED Talk <laughs> course at, at Hall <laughs> International Business School. And I always talk about the importance of storytelling. So I'm I, I, I can't wait to actually go watch your TED talk after this, but um, but along those same lines, when you, when you talk about that that second pivotal moment of really understanding the systems and the expectations that can be either created and, and manifested or faltered again, um, how how moving forward, you know, again, coming out of the global pandemic, what, what's the future of higher education? Mm -hmm. What are some of those systems that you feel really need some work in order to better support uh, diverse student populations and to really ensure the success of any student who wants to, to get a, a, a degree? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that uh, question, Tessa. And I, I apologize. It's going to feel like self-promotion, but I'm going to use three key points from my TED Talk because I actually talk about this in the TED Talk. Um, so I think the three key points are uh, time, place, and how we teach. Those are the three big things that I think are going to be, uh, uh, that are, have been accelerated as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so under the rubric of time, uh, the way that we typically and traditionally think about how learning occurs um, will be upended. Um, and so instead of, uh, instead of uh, time uh, being the constant and learning being variable, so you know, seek time, you have to sit 13 weeks and all of that, uh, learning will become constant and time will be variable. And so how we actually approach learning, learning becomes the center of how we do it. And then we build systems around the learner and how learning happens. The second is place. Again, we often think of place being, you know, in the classroom or in the building. Um, I think what you have seen as a result of the pandemic is the proliferation, the absolute proliferation of online. And, and I don't just call it online 
uh, education, I call it digital learning. Um, and so the way that we see learning occurring um, is in a full scope of ways and utilizing digital uh, enablement and digital frameworks to actually help that. And then um, the last is in terms of the way that we teach. Um, again, completely unbundling the way that we often think about the typical role of a faculty member or a professor or thinking about the role of advising, thinking about, as Michael was talking about earlier, what is the role for technology? Thinking about AI and predictive analytics that provide that just-in-time resource and support that gets Adrian to move to the next step of the learning. Um, and so really sort of deconstructing the way that we typically think about post-secondary. Uh, the last thing that I'll just share as a part of uh, all three of those is that the, uh, there's, there's always a place for the degree. So I, I, please, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't want the degree, but one of the things that you're now beginning to see um, is uh, the, the shorter form learning micro-credentials and others, and they're becoming, they're, their employers are validating it. Um, so think of the number of, of, of boot camps and short-term credentials that you're now seeing, you know, uh, earn, um, uh, learn and earn opportunities that are happening. The Amazons and, you know, folks who are doing this where they're actually saying, you know what, we can't wait two years or four years for you to get the degree, which we know two years and four years is, is a bit of an anomaly nowadays. Uh, so what we want to do is we want to build these stackable opportunities for you to not just learn, but to gain the skills that are needed. And again, just to borrow a word from or a phrase from my uh, from my TED talk where I say, um, you know, we need to build a global a global skills bank where skills becomes the new currency and not credits. And so skills are really uh, the piece that I see are going to be a huge uh, proliferation within this new, this new economy or post-pandemic or whatever it is we call this 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 time. Adrian, I love this. You're making me want to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> as we as we close out the show today, uh, could you share with us some thoughts you have about the business case for hiring and managing those diverse teams that you think other companies should really understand that the people who are listening on the show, what's the business case? Yeah. Uh, so for me, uh, Michael, the short version of it is uh, uh, more diverse teams. Uh, the business case is that you get deeper engagement, you get more productivity, more creativity, better products, better services. Uh, and it, it, so all the things that uh, are typical metrics as you begin thinking about it. And it actually has a, a bottom line impact. Um, and so it's not just good for uh, you know, the social conscious is actually good for business. And then when you think about it uh, externally as well, um, I just, I think of the number of uh, places and spaces that uh, either I or others get to go into. And you see, for example, funders or investors now, um, or VC who are saying, uh, we want to look at who's on your board. We want to look at the representation of your leadership team in terms of gender, uh, race, ethnicity, background, they wanna know how proximal are your leaders to the work that's being done. Um, and so it really does. And then of course, the consumer side of it, as you think about even higher education, I know oftentimes we don't like calling our, our students or prospective students consumers, uh, but we know the, the behavior 
of our consumers, our prospective consumers. And so they're becoming much uh, more savvier um, in that context, and they're looking for those very things. And so those are some of the things that we talk about in terms of the business case. And I mean, you can come up with all kinds of metrics uh, to go along with that. But when, uh, when we look at these uh, environments and we look at these organizations, uh, that's the business case. Adrian, this has been so great. Our, our time just flew by today. I just want to thank you for sharing the time with us today. Thank and you. we hope we'd love to be in touch again in like maybe six months or so and see what, what some new developments are happening at SNHU. But thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you. Glad to be with you. And thank you for this time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.